Well, when I was uh, a kid and when I was in grade school, um, my sister and I, we used to spend a lot of time at my grandma and grandpa's house. And, and they lived in this tiny house, like now being older and, you know, living in a little bit of a bigger house and thinking back and, and driving past that house sometimes, uh, I'm like, how did we survive in that tiny little house? But we used to stay with my grandparents a lot. And we would play this game in the front room. It was kind of a little, of a little, a little porch area where you came into the house and, and it was really small, but um, we would play this, this game. And for some reason, I don't know if it, something that came in a cereal box or what it was, but we had this little like lemon. It was like a little guy. It was this lemon that had like arms and legs. And we would play this game where we would hide this little lemon guy somewhere in the room. The other person had to go out of the room and you would come in and you would look for it. And anything was fair game. You could put it anywhere, you know, and the, the other person would look for it. And if they weren't finding it, you know, you do the whole like hotter, colder, right, thing. And we've all probably had some type of game that you've played, whether it was like hide and seek or whether you played some kind of hide the little lemon guy game with your siblings or whoever, where you tried to help the other person like, you know, you're getting hotter, you're getting colder and kids, you probably play similar types of games. But there's this idea there, right, that like you're looking in the wrong place, like you're really cold and the other person needs to tell you because if you keep looking in that area, you're never going to find the item that you're looking for. And for those of us who are older, like we play this game with ourselves, right, because we can't find things and we forget where we put them and we're asking our spouse like, hey, have you seen this thing? And then it's like you find it and you're like, oh yeah, that's where I put it. But we all kind of have this experience at times of looking in the wrong place for something. And we're going to see this in our text today. And as we come to this text, we're, it's going to be kind of this continuation of this back and forth that Jesus has been having between the Pharisees and his disciples, especially in these last few chapters. He's been going back and forth. He'll, he'll kind of confront the Pharisees and then he'll teach his disciples something. And we're going to break this down today into three sections. So if you're taking notes, we have three sections, and then each section kind of has three different parts. So there will be like nine different headings, so there's a lot. But if you're taking notes, the three sections that we're going to have in, in each, the three headings in each section, we're going to look at a temptation, we're going to look at a warning, which is negative, and then we're going to look at a demand, which is positive. So a temptation, a warning, and a demand. There's going to be three of each of those. And the first set of these are addressed to the Pharisees. Then the second and the third set will be addressed to the disciples. Now, if you're just visiting with us or you haven't been here for the past few weeks, uh, there have been some hard passages. Uh, there's been some challenging verses that have some kind of maybe controversial interpretations uh, in, in chapters 16 and 17 here. Obviously, we've seen a lot of those different things. And really, the, the intensity is really starting to ratchet up here. Um, I listened to a sermon by Sinclair Ferguson uh, He on this passage. And he talked about how, as he was preaching through Luke, like he could feel the intensity. He could feel like kind of the weight of all these things. And he was like, is this just me? Like, is there something going on in my life? And, and he said he like went back and, and reread through Luke. And he's like, no, this is really like, this is really happening. This, things are getting really intense. And, and like I said, I feel that. I feel that too. Um, 
as we're going through this, as Jesus gets closer to Jerusalem, as he gets closer to the cross, we witness this increasing tension, especially as he's interacting with the religious leaders. So as we get started here, verse 20, we really have to read verse 20 in light of the previous passage. I think this is really interesting here. It says, being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, And if we look right back at the previous passage, Jesus has just healed 10 lepers. He's just had this interaction where these 10 people are healed. Uh, One of them turns back to thank him. It's a Samaritan. It's this foreigner. And there's just this picture of of God's mercy, of, of Jesus' power. And, you know, we're assuming that the Pharisees witnessed that, right? They saw that happen. And now they're going, well, when is the kingdom of God gonna come? And it's like, Hello, like where have you been this whole time as Jesus has been teaching you and telling you all, the, all these things? So you know, we kind of have to, have to read this question. There's, there's probably a bit of like skepticism and a bit of, of they're kind of like going after Jesus. Like, hey, when, when is this going to come? And I love Jesus' reply here because it, and it kind of pokes at them a little bit in, in how they're missing it. He says the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed in verse 20 there. Now this is really interesting because if you read the rest of the gospel of of Luke, we get to chapter 21, or you read Matthew 24, which we call the Olivet Discourse. It's Jesus kind of talking about his return, talking about the end times. He gives this whole list of all these things that are going to accompany his coming, right? So there will be things that will be visible. There will be these signs that will point to his coming. So when he says here, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, it's kind of like, okay, well, what's going on? Well, this, and again, we have to kind of read this in, in the context of, of the whole gospel account. Jesus has earlier criticized the Pharisees because, and, and criticized that generation. He says, this is a generation that demands a sign, right? Then he says, no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. Well, so like he's saying, oh, there's not going to be a sign, but well, there really is going to be a sign. That's kind of what's going on here. He's saying, you guys are looking for these like magnificent, huge things. And he's saying, I just healed this whole group of lepers, right? Like, what, wasn't that good enough? And so he's kind of poking at the Pharisees here for how they're really, they're really missing it. And he, then he says, people aren't going to say, look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom is in the midst of you. So this, you may have kind of run across this before. If you, if you look at the footnote um, here, if you have the ESV, and when you're reading your Bible, I would encourage you, if there's ever a footnote, to, to look at it. If you've seen this before, uh, you've, you've kind of heard this, the debate here about what this verse means. Uh, The ESV says the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. There's a footnote there, number nine. If you look down, it says, or within you or within your grasp. So the preposition that's used here is only used two times in the New Testament. The other time it's in Matthew, where Jesus tells the Pharisees to clean the inside of the cup. So there it means inside, but it can also mean what it says here, within your grasp or in the midst of you. Uh, this is kind of one of those things, if you read, you know, 10 different commentaries, uh, you're not going to get 10 different opinions, but you're, you're going to get one of these three, like, pretty spread out, uh, mostly in your midst or within you. Not a lot of people take the within your grasp view, but um, so trusted scholars do disagree on this. I think 
the ESV gets it right, saying in the midst of you or among you. Uh, I don't think saying within you is probably accurate here because we have to remember who Jesus is talking to. He's talking to the Pharisees. And when people say that the kingdom of God is within you here, they mean like in you, in your heart. And clearly the kingdom of God was not in the Pharisees' hearts, right? It wasn't within them in that way. So I think the ESV gets it gets it right here, the most accurate saying that the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And I think that actually points to the temptation that we're going to look at here. Our, the first temptation is the temptation to overlook what is right in front of us. The temptation is to overlook what is right in front of us. And the warning flows right out of the temptation. The warning is don't miss it, right? Don't miss what is right in front of you. Jesus' life and ministry is a clear and visible manifestation of the kingdom of God breaking into human history in a completely unique way. Though it has been foreshadowed in many ways in the Old Testament, which we're going to see in a little bit here, but there is something unique that Jesus has, has done as he's come to earth, as he's brought the kingdom of God to bear on, on this earth. So that is the warning. Don't miss it. Jesus is saying, I'm right here in the midst of you, right? This is how you're going to see the kingdom, by seeing me. And that's the demand. The demand is to recognize God's kingdom activity in your midst. Pharisees failed to do this, and this is not the first place that we see their failure to do this. Again, if you have the Pew Bible, uh, you just look over right to your left at the very end of chapter 16 that la that whole last section in chapter 16 was Jesus talking about the rich man and Lazarus and what was the indictment that Jesus had against the Pharisees that was seen in this story of the rich man and his brothers it comes right at the end of that passage it was that they failed to listen to Moses and the prophets Jesus saying what was right in front of your face, the written word of God that is before you, that you hear every, every week when you go to the synagogues, that you're able to, to have as a part of your community life, God's word right before you, you missed it. For all this time, you've missed it. And now the word of God who became flesh and dwelt among you is right here in front of you, and you're missing it, right? Like, this whole thing is, is just so tied to what Jesus has been saying and how he's been poking the religious leaders in the eye and saying, you guys, you're not getting it. Like, I'm telling you who I am, and you keep missing it. Well, a slight tangent here, um, but it's a little bit maybe related to this idea of, of looking in the, in the wrong place. One of my goals in preaching is that I would help you all, help myself as I study, right, to, to be better students of God's word, to know how to read our Bibles better, to know how to more accurately understand what is going on. And as I say over and over and over, you don't need a seminary degree to be able to do that, right? You don't need to, to study Greek and Hebrew to be able to understand God's word. We have we have a fantastic translation, a lot of fantastic translations, uh, ESV, Christian Standard Bible, there's other good translations. Um, just, just grab one of those and read it. You're not missing anything by not knowing the Greek, okay? And if you have questions, there's amazing resources out there. 
Uh, if you don't, if you're an ESV fan and you don't yet have a copy of the ESV Study Bible, I would highly recommend getting one. Uh, the ESV Study Bible, you can, you can get on your phone or whatever. Um, it is a great resource, great notes. There's tons of articles in the back uh, that explain theology and all these different things. Um, the Bible Project videos, which we've used some of those outlines before, those are fant fantastic free resources. You can get the app for that on your phone. If you really want to dig in more, there's commentaries available at all different levels from just kind of a very like practical day-to-day -day commentary, uh, like J.C. Ryle's commentaries that I quote from a lot of times. He wrote those commentaries for his congregations. They're not like super deep theologically. It's not something you're going to have to like there's not going to be all these like Greek words that you're like, I don't know what that means. It's, it's really kind of written at a popular level. And then you can go all the way to, to very advanced things, right? If you want to get super technical, you can dig deeper. And, and part of why I'm saying this is my encouragement to you is even in doing that, there's, there's really good resources out there. But if you want to dig a little deeper sometimes, don't always go just to the people who you might agree with theologically, right? Like, there's, there's so many good resources out there. There's so many good scholars out there. Um, and there are definitely some things to avoid, right? There's, there's people you probably shouldn't re be reading. But there's also some things that are helpful to read, maybe that might be like outside of our theological camp. And I say this because this week, as I was reading some commentaries, I, I had done my work on the passage. And, and I was just kind of wrestling with like how to kind of bring all this together. Like I get what it's saying, but I feel like it just needed a little bit of help. And all the more like reformed guys that I was reading were just kind of all saying the same thing I felt like I was seeing. And then I read uh, a commentary by a guy named Joel Green. Uh, he's a good evangelical scholar uh, at Fuller Seminary and agree with him on a lot of things, but like not exactly on the same page on, on some theological things. And sometimes I'll read him and I kind of like scratch my head. Like, I'm not really sure like what he's talking about. But other times I read him and I'm like, man, like this guy gets it. Like he's explaining these things in a way that nobody else is explaining them. And especially in Luke, he's just, he's got such a good grasp of like kind of cultural things that are going on and all these like inner workings. And he's just always tying it in. You know, some people are just like, here's what this verse says and here's what it means. He's just always like tying everything together. And it's really helpful um, to see that. So I'm going to be sharing just, I know that's a, kind of a lot of information about that, but I'm going to be sharing a few things from his commentary today and just kind of how it, that really helped me to like understand this passage better. But his summary of these first two verses here is really good. He says, Jesus reprimands the Pharisees in their kingdom seeking for looking for the wrong thing and in the wrong way and asserts that the kingdom is already operative if only they would open their eyes to see it. The kingdom of God is closely related to the person and activity to Jesus, of Jesus. Failing to understand this, the Pharisees do not recognize and cannot respond to God's new world order. But, as we're about to see, the Pharisees are not the only target of Jesus' warning about temptations to look in the wrong place. Next, Jesus turns to the disciples, and this is where we ought to sit up in our seats and listen up, because this is addressed to us just as much sitting here 2,000 years later as it was to them in that day. So the second thing that we're going to see, this is in verses 22 to 30, the second temptation, this one's a little bit longer, 
kind of a twofold temptation. It's a temptation to be drawn away from what has been revealed. <clears throat> a temptation to be drawn away from what has been revealed and to be lulled to sleep by the ordinary activities of daily life. So a temptation to be drawn away from what has been revealed and to be lulled to sleep by the ordinary activities of daily life. So the warning, which just, again, comes right out of the temptation, is don't be drawn away or lulled to sleep, right? That's what Jesus is saying here. Don't be drawn away and don't be lulled to sleep. The first part of that is don't be drawn away. He says in verse 22, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look there or look here. Do not go out or follow them. Here Jesus is talking to them about their desire to see the kingdom, to see the days of the Son of Man, one of the days of the Son of Man, but they will not see it because Again, in a similar way to the Pharisees, they're actually looking for it in the wrong way. They're looking for the wrong thing. And that the temptation to look for the wrong thing, I think, is seen here in verse 23. They, which we don't know exactly who, who the they are, but it's, it's other people, right? Other people are going to say, oh, look, there, there's the sign. Like, here it is. Go here or go there. And Jesus says, no, don't do it. And if you've been around long enough, if you've been around the church or just like watched the news, you know, over the last couple decades, like it seems like every few years, maybe it's like once a decade or so, there's always going to be this, this new person who comes out, right? And like, oh, I got the date, right? Like Jesus is coming back, you know, February 20th, 2021, get ready, right? Like store up your stuff in your basement, get your guns ready or what? I don't know. Like, just like. He's coming, you know, and maybe somebody's coming for you. I don't know, whatever it is. But like, there's this, there's this idea that there's good, like, this is going to happen, right? People are going to say, oh, here, here it is. Go here, go there. And like, with the state of everything going on in the world right now, and just all the, the, the fraction, fractioning happening, like in the church and in our society, like, I think this kind of stuff is going to ramp up, like, right? Like, but Jesus is saying, don't run after every little thing or every little warning. Like, not that, not that we like never listen to anything. There could be crazy things going on in the world. But he's saying like, that's not where, when you're hoping for the kingdom, that's not where you go, right? You don't run after like this person said or that person said or all these predictions. He's saying here to the disciples, just like he said to the Pharisees, look to me, right? Like, stop looking at all this other stuff. Look to me. And verse 24 kind of explains that. Like, you, you can't miss it. Like, when Jesus comes, you're not going to miss it. It's not going to be what these other people are saying. Verse 24, when the lightning, as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. I don't know if you guys have ever driven through, like, a crazy lightning storm. I, when I was in high school, once I went to a basketball game uh, with, with a cousin of mine. We drove through this crazy storm, and we were listening to ride, the Ride the Lightning album by Metallica as we were like driving through this lightning storm is amazing. Um, not that I'm recommending you listen to that music, but um, it was just this like 
just completely unforgettable, like for driving for an hour to this away game, just through this crazy storm and just lightning, lighting up the sky. They're like, that's what it's going to be like. It's, it's not like, oh, was, that, was there a flash there in the distance? Like, no, it's going to, the whole sky is going to light up and you are not going to be able to miss Jesus coming. That's what he's saying here. And then in verse um, 25, which we're going to look at a little, we're going to come back to this. He says, first, uh, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. And this is part of the reason why, why Joel Green's commentary was so helpful um, for me this week. He, we've, uh, James and I have both mentioned before, um, like a, it's called a chiasm. It's kind of this parallel. It's like A, B, C. Whoops, right on the edge there. I thought I was falling off. It's like A, B, C, B, A. So like the A's match up, the B's match up. And then there's a C in the middle, which is like the main point of the passage. And all these things parallel each other. Well, this is how, how he explains this passage. The disciples begin, this is just verses 22 to 37. It doesn't include the Pharisees section. But the disciples begin in verses 22 to 24 by asking Jesus, where? So Jesus, Jesus is asked by the disciples, where is the kingdom? That's A. And then B, we see Jesus suffering and rejection here in verse 25. And then C, which is really the center of the passage, is the readiness in anticipation of calamitous judgment. So verses 26 to 30, which we're about to get into, is really kind of the, the center of, of the whole argument here, okay? And then it goes back to the other B, which is the disciples' abandonment of their lives in verses 31 to 36, which mirrors Jesus' suffering and rejection. And then verse 37 is the A, where the disciples ask where. So there's this where, where. Jesus suffering and rejection are losing our lives. And then the middle part is this readiness. So does that make sense? Kind of this parallel argument. I think that the way he structured that just really was, was helpful. So kind of we're getting into that center section now about the readiness in anticipation of calamitous judgment. So verses 26 through 30 here, and um, Chris got into this a little bit with the with children's message. This is meant to arrest our attention here as Jesus warns us not to be lulled to sleep by the mundane activities of life. And he points here to two very old test, very familiar Old Testament scenes. He points to the flood and to the destruction of Sodom with fire from heaven. In those days, we're told, people were just going about their regular old business, right? They were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying, they were buying and selling, they were planting and building. And clearly there is nothing inherently sinful in any of those activities. So what is Jesus' point here? The warning in both of these accounts is not to be lulled to sleep. Those in Noah's day were busy going about their lives, despite the fact that Noah had been warning people with his preaching, right? And then one day, suddenly, out of nowhere, they were all swept away by the flood. The next account in Sodom, where there was great wickedness. Lot actually went and he warned his two sons-in-law to flee along with him and his wife and his two daughters, and they thought he was joking, right? And they stayed behind and they got burned up with the rest of the people. So the warning here is very clear. Do not be lulled to sleep. So what then is the demand that Jesus makes? The demand 
is to live your ordinary Christian life with a sense of urgency. Live your ordinary Christian life with a sense of urgency. Again, the problem here is not engaging in the ordinary activities of life. We love to talk here at Livingstone about the ordinary means of grace, the word of God, the sacraments, and prayer. It's what we do week in and week out. We do it here corporately. We should be doing this personally as we read the word of God and as we pray. This is to be a day in and a day out practice in our lives. Certainly we wouldn't say, I wouldn't say to you, Jesus is coming soon. You'd better be ready. So don't waste your time reading your Bible and praying every day. Or don't waste your time coming to church and communing with your brothers and sisters in Christ. That would be foolish. Those things are actually the way not to get lulled to sleep by the ordinary activities of life in this world, which we must all continue to do for our physical survival, right? We have to do all those things. But these things, these ordinary means of grace are the way not to get lulled to sleep. But if we neglect our spiritual survival and the urgency that it requires, then we will be in trouble. We just had a membership class on Friday night, and uh, it was a great time to kind of go through a little bit about what we believe as a church. We got to talk a little bit about uh, the role of the Westminster Standards, so the Westminster Confession of Faith and the larger and shorter catechisms, uh, what the role that they play uh, in our denomination, and shared a little bit about the, the confession, how it's basically a, a systematic theology. It, it kind of goes through what the Bible teaches about a whole bunch of different uh, doctrines. There's 33 chapters, and the last chapter is of the last judgment, and I love how it ends. So after 33 chapters of, of explaining kind of what we believe about the Bible, this is how the entire confession ends, right? This is the last paragraph in the confession. It says, as Christ would have us to be certainly persuaded that there shall be a day of judgment, both to deter all men from sin and for the greater consolation of the godly in their adversity. Okay, so we're to be assured of the judgment, both as a reminder to, to flee from sin, right? Judgment is coming, so flee from your sin. And a consolation for the godly of their adversity, right? Like, you're, you're going to suffer, but it's okay because Christ is coming. So will he have that day unknown to men that they may shake off all carnal security and be always watchful because they know not at what hour the Lord will come. And may we be prepared to say, come Lord Jesus, come quickly. Amen. What a great way to end the confession, right? Keep your eyes, look forward. Jesus is coming. Shake off all carnal security and be always watchful. So how are we doing at this? How are we doing at shaking off carnal security and being always watchful? This doesn't just happen. Right? This is part of the process of growth and of sanctification in the Christian life. It's been said that sanctification and, and this growth is a long obedience in the same direction, right? It's it's a, it's a work, it's a work in progress. It's a work of God by his spirit that he does. 
And just as I said that part of my calling is to help you read and, and understand your Bibles better, another part of my calling that's, that's just as weighty is that part of my calling is to prepare people for eternity, right? It's to prepare you for the coming of the Son of Man, and this is a huge responsibility for me, myself, to, to be focused on these things, to keep these things before my own heart and my own mind, and to, to come up here and to consistently keep them before your heart and mind also. Now, like, there's a lot about the second coming and all these things, and like, this isn't just a sermon on eschatology and our views of the end times, but we always have to have those things in mind. We always have to be reminded that Jesus is coming, and even just, even as you just read through the gospel, right? Like, you're reading through this account of Jesus' life and ministry as he's going to the cross, as he's resurrecting from the dead, and as he's promising his return. Like, we, we read our Bibles in that way, and it should just being in God's word is going to keep your mind fixed on those things, and it's going to keep your mind off of these carnal securities. It's going to help you to be watchful. So, you know, it's not just coming to church on Sunday and hoping the pastor will remind you to fix your, your eyes and your mind on eternity, right? Like, that's part of your responsibility in your day in and day out Christian life. But that's also a huge weight that I feel, right? That part of my job is helping prepare God's people for eternity. So this, what we're called here, this shaking off of carnal security and this being always watchful, this isn't how we get right with God. We don't get right with God by doing these things. We do these things because we're right with God, right? We do these things out of an overflow of our worship and and what God has done for us in Christ. And if you haven't yet, I don't know what more Jesus needs to say to you, to warn you. Judgment is coming, and it will be sudden and inescapable. The warning and the demand here, if you are not a disciple of Jesus, is don't wait around. Don't continue to go about your life in this world as if all is well when at any moment Jesus could return. So turn to him now. Turn from your sin and fall at his feet for his mercy and forgiveness. Which leads us into this final section that follows nicely with the warning to be ready with a sense of urgency. The the final temptation is to preserve our lives in this world. Verses 31 and 30 to 37. The temptation is to preserve our lives in this world. And the warning to followers of Jesus is don't be overly concerned with this life. In verse 31, Jesus says, On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. He's saying, be ready to go, right? When the time comes, be so prepared, be so watchful that you don't have to go like, oh, shoot, I forgot my phone in the house. You're like, Jesus is coming. Let me go grab my phone so I can like have GPS to wherever I'm coming. Like, no, you don't need that, right? He's coming for you. Be ready so that you can just flee and and leave all that stuff behind. And then probably my favorite verse in this whole passage, verse 32. Remember Lot's wife, (laughs) right? Remember Lot's wife. He had just told uh, about Lot, about God coming and destroying 
Sodom, but there's a, there's a little space in between that and this, this command here. Remember Lot's wife. She was the one who was overly concerned with the comforts of this life. She turned and looked back, hoping maybe she could go back for something or actually just wishing she could be back in Sodom. And she turned into a pillar of salt and she lost her life. <clears throat> Verse 33, remember the chiastic structure I talked about. Verse 33 parallels verse 25. So we'll go back to first verse 25. Jesus said about the Son of Man, about himself, he must first suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. So that's what Jesus is going to experience. Now we come to verse 33 and what we will experience. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. Now, again, this is not, we got to get this order right, right? Because this is not just like suffering for the sake of suffering. It's saying, no, Jesus already suffered and Jesus faced rejection on our behalf. Therefore, we can do the same thing, right? Because he suffered for us. Again, we're not like earning any points with Jesus because we suffer in this life. We're suffering just as he suffered. We're suffering along with him. And that is to be expected. So the, the warning and the kind of the demand is, is don't hold on too tightly to your life in this world. And the, the, so the demand here is, is lose your life in order to keep it. And this is a, a constant and consistent theme that Jesus said and, and taught in his ministry. We've seen it here throughout Luke. Uh, Luke chapter 9, verses 23 to 25, it said, if Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? The alternative to this, to not taking up your cross and following Jesus, to losing or saving your own life in in this world the alternative is not a pretty picture. And that is what is described in verses 34 to 37, where it has this picture of, of two people, one being left and another being taken. So Jesus is saying here, you will either be one of those who are prepared and are watchful and are taken by the Lord when he comes, or you will be left where the vultures will circle your dead body and you will be destroyed just like those in the days of Noah and just like those in the days of Lot. For the disciples of Jesus, there is nothing scary about this passage, right? There is no fear of being consumed by the vultures because you're left behind. This is another exciting reminder of the security of our future beyond this life. And it should create in us a sense of urgency and anticipation. But for those who continue to reject Jesus in our generation, just as they did in his generation, it is a warning that time is running out. I want to close here. I I tried to not get too uh, sidetracked with other passages. There's a lot of parallel passages, uh, especially throughout Luke, uh, that that talk about similar themes. Uh, But I do want to, you can feel free to turn there if you want. Uh, I want to look at Daniel chapter 7. Uh, real quickly, just a couple of verses. 
If you have the Pew Bible, it's on page 745. Daniel chapter 7. In our men's time this week, we've been, we've been going through the book of Daniel, and uh, in our men's time, we were in chapter 7, and there is this amazing uh, vision that Daniel has, and um, he sees this vision of the Son of Man uh, being coming to the Ancient of Days, and I think this is just a, a, a beautiful picture to close with, a beautiful picture to remind us of, of something that Jesus, uh, well, it's, it's here in Daniel, pointing forward to what Jesus is going to do, but Jesus' reference to himself as the Son of Man throughout the Gospels is a very clear reference to this passage in Daniel. But just as we think about where are we looking, where are our hearts and our minds focused, I think this this picture here in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, is just a great picture with us, a big, great picture for us to close with as we think about uh, keeping our eyes fixed on Christ. Daniel says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days, and he was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Let us keep our eyes fixed on this Son of Man. Let us look for this coming kingdom that he has promised will be an eternal kingdom where he will reign forever and ever, and we will see him as he is, and we will be with him. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this reminder in your word. Uh, we thank you for these warnings, uh, these demands that Jesus makes on us as his followers, not to look to other places, not to be sidetracked uh, by, by other things, not to be lulled to sleep, but to be ready, to be prepared for his coming, to have our eyes fixed on the kingdom, to have our eyes fixed on the Son of Man, so that when he comes, we will be prepared. Father, strengthen us as your people as we come week in, week out, as we seek to, to grow, as we seek to, uh, to worship you, as we, as we just week in and week out um, gather and, and observe these ordinary means of grace, as we see you uh, in your word, as we, as we pray, as we uh, taste and observe uh, you in the sacraments. Um, God, may we be a people who are just constantly reminded, constantly reminded of, of who you are, of, of your coming kingdom, and that we would be hopeful, that we would be watchful, and God, that we would be a people who, who look to you uh, for all things. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.